Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. Do you want to dive into some deep sea news? So, I was in San Diego last week. There was a COP27 going on. Uh, and that's all, and there's a lot of stuff on there about deep sea mining, which, as you know, I tend to keep a low profile on such a thing. But there's stuff going on in the background, and there was an organisation, they did a big analysis of this, a big economic analysis of it, from completely fresh eyes. And I got a phone call during that week that said, this is amazing, this is a lot of sand water out, and basically they're saying there is no metals gap. The gap doesn't exist, so you don't need to do it. And even if you did do it, it would never really make any money. But part of me was like, if this is true, then think how much time we've wasted over the last, let's say, 10 years chasing this big evil thing that isn't going to ever happen. So that was one day, and then the COP27 thing went off, and then two days later, a press release came out from the metals company about a company called Nori and Alsees, who have just destroyed 80 kilometres of deep sea floor of the Clarion Clipper and brought in astronomical, or was it 3,000 tonnes of manganese nodules and there's a photograph which I find haunting of a little dude in his safety gear in the hull of a ship looking at a gigantic pyramid of that and then when I read it the guy as we know Gerard Barron he's the chairman of the Mel's company he says quote we believe in making decisions based on data and evidence not speculation and sentiment and that got my blood boiling at that point I thought <laughs> you know what I've been sitting on the fence with deep sea mining far too long to say that they're destroying huge parts of the environment based on data and evidence and not speculation and sentiment that is the single most insulting thing a guy like that could ever say Mm. and he's doing it next to a guy bragging about this 3,000 ton pile of manganese nodules and you think of all the stuff that we've done in our career to study these animals and how they work and they're just going out there and just destroying every single one of them over 80 kilometers and that's the test they've got a targeted production capacity of 1.3 million tons of wet nodules per year with an expected readiness by 2024 I don't know maybe it's time to bail head first in a deep sea mine and get the gloves off it's still muddy it's still messy but yeah it's almost like well does it matter talking about it if it's just going to be done anyway yeah that's kind of the reason why I've always stayed out of it because there's loads of people working on it someone's got to do something else I'm confident that there are people in the business who know more than I do or are there shouting for our cause but then you see that well maybe it's not binary maybe it's it's how much is done whether it is a, a massive undertaking or just a few niche companies try and make it a thing We've realised that we've got maybe a little bit carried away and done some of the weird stuff. (laughs) Running down caves and into deep rivers when we haven't actually covered the big, iconic habitats of the deep sea. So we're going to do a little run of episodes now for sort of the key habitats, the ones that maybe everyone knows about, really, but getting more into more detail about them. So we're going to start off with... Seamounts. So today we have Ashley Roden on the Deep Sea Podcast and Ash works at the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research and Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. But his research interests are centred around drivers and processes that control and maintain biodiversity in the marine environment. And while he has extensive experience researching the effects of things like bottom trawling, deep sea mining, spatial management, he's also well versed in the ways of the mighty seamount. And that's what he's here to talk about today. Hello, Ash. Hi, Al. How's it going? Good. Right, let's talk about seamounts. But before we do, I think we have to establish our nomenclature. 
So there are four different features which are probably in the Seamount family. Name them. Uh, Knolls. Yes. Hills. Yes. Seamounts and Guyos. Right, so what's the definition? Seamounts and Guyos are of a certain height, right? Yeah, the geologists sort of first came up with that definition and they said a seamount had to have a thousand metres of elevation. Yep. And Guyos are essentially the same, but they have flat tops. Yep. And then the knolls and the hills, I can't remember what the actual elevation cutoffs are, but essentially they're smaller features. That's what I thought, but it turns out that I looked up the International Hydrographic Organization's mm. definitions today, and both of them just have to be less than a thousand. And the only difference between the two is a knoll is a rounded profile, whereas a hill is generally of irregular shape. Ah, there you go. Yeah. But the interesting thing about those definitions is that they've caused a lot of trouble now because people want to obviously have a single name sometimes. Yeah. And therefore, people have struggled to sort of come up with something that's a bit more meaningful from a biological or e- ecological perspective rather than that geological sort of cutoff or topographical shape. Yeah. And so in about 2007, there was a book that was published on seamounts. And the editors of that book tried to redefine, if you like, seamounts, saying that in an ecological sense, it was any elevation above the seafloor that was enough to create some sort of ecological signal. Yeah. And, th- and that could be then anything that was above 100 meters in elevation. Ooh. And therefore, that captured hills, knolls, and all the rest of it. And it was really just one big happy family called seamounts. But I mean, this is the same as terrestrial environments when you have a definition of a mountain versus a hill versus a ridge and, and that That's right. sort of yeah. ambiguous descriptor that causes problems everywhere. That's right. So it's somewhat subjective. But there are still quite significant features in the deep ocean. So for the benefit of everyone else, what's the life history of a seamount? How do you get from a flat, barren, and abyssal plain to something that has one of these big mountains punctuating it? So most seamounts have some sort of um, volcanic origin. Either they're still active or they're long ago dead volcanoes. And others can be formed by uh, other processes where you could have rifting that just pushes up blocks of the seafloor. Mm-hmm. But most most have some sort of volcanic origin. Those seamounts are generally pointy, right? Yeah, conical and pointy, if you like. And geos are flats. Yeah. Is there any ecological difference between the two? Yeah. It does. Yeah, with the geos, because they have that flat top, and that's from, at some point, being at the surface and being eroded into a flat top and then getting submerged. That flat surface then can be a place where you're going to get sedimentation, so you're going to get sediment buildup. And so the surfaces on those flat tops are nice and soft, and they will support one sets of organisms, but their sides are still typically hard substrate, and so that's a different habitat and you'll have other sets of organisms. Whereas if it's conical shaped, then primarily that's going to be hard substrate and there'll only be tiny or no small patches of soft sediment. Yeah. So quite different then in terms of habitat. So in terms of context as a deep sea habitat, how many are there globally? I have some estimates in front of me. Yes, there's lots of different <laughs> estimates and they all depend upon the methodologies which have been used. Obviously, you know that this whole of the seafloor surface has not been mapped yeah. in any great detail. And so most global estimates come from looking at satellite data. So they basically determine the rise in the sea surface that's made by having a seamount underneath it. So very small rises on that sea surface can be detected by satellite altimeters. And so you look for all of those bumps and you predict that there's going to be a seamount underneath them. And then they do their counts that way. Plus, of course, a whole lot of other data which you can get where there might have been soundings or there might have been bathymetric surveys. 
and you add all of that in. And you can also then look where you've got detailed information and you can compare it with the satellite altimetry data. You can have a look at what the nature of that relationship is and then you can use those factors to extrapolate into your global estimates. And the global estimates vary, again, depending on what cutoff you're using for defining your seamount to hundreds of thousands to millions. What's the latest estimate you've got? There's not many estimates. They don't distinguish between seamounts and gears or nulls and hills and all the rest of it. If you take all of it together, the, the estimates range from greater than 150,000 to over 25 million, Yeah, which is a, quite a significant range. Yeah. And there was a figure I read that was of the ones greater than 1,000 metres high, mm. they probably account for 4.7% of the ocean floor, which is 17 million square kilometres, whereas the ones less than 1,000 metres are about 16% yeah. of the ocean floor, which might account for 59 million square kilometres. So that's huge. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It is. They are a significant global habitat. When you see a map of them, there's not many places that don't have them. Yeah, and the Pacific, of course, is uh, the hotspot of them, mainly, again, because of that seismic activity that creates a uh, majority of seamounts. So in terms of that going one stage further on that significance is when they punctuate the otherwise flat plains... What influence does a seamount have on the overlying water column? So it depends upon the size of that seamount as to how much it interrupts the overlying water column. So it can, by dint of its size and whether and in what type of water mass it is existing in, then it can cause topographically induced currents to move up the size of the seamounts, causing upwelling. And they can also create circulation around the seamount as well, known as a Taylor column. And then that can entrain water above the top of the seamount and around the sides, which can potentially concentrate plankton which can be food for other organisms, et cetera, et cetera. But those sorts of relationships between seamounts and the overlying water column doesn't occur, of course, at every seamount. And sort of figuring out which seamounts it occurs and how many has occupied people for a bit of time. In terms of just figuring out what's the general statements that one can make about seamounts and their influence on that water column. So this is where my next question is going. There's a guy called Larry Connor who recently flew the first commercial spacecraft to the International Space Station. A few months before he did that, he was with us on the ship and he was doing a couple of Challenger deep dives. And he came to me and he said, right, where can I dive that will be scientifically different that no one's done before? So we're looking at the charts, Southern Mariana slopes, and there's a seamount there. And the seamount started around a little over 8,000 metres and came up to less than 7,000 metres. As it happens, it was insanely boring. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yeah, yeah, sorry, Mr. Connor, that one perhaps wasn't the, the smartest move. And I remember just, it was around that time, shortly after that, we moved on and came off West Australia. And I dove personally on a couple of seamounts down at 5,000 metres off, off WA. And I remember after that, I remember writing to you going, hold on a sec, somebody stop the bus here. I've always been told that seabounts are like biodiversity hotspots and unbelievable seascapes and all this kind of stuff. And every time I go near a seamount or see any deep seamount stuff, they're very boring. Mm. I think your reply was, seamounts have had some really good PR. Yeah. <laughs> well, they have, yeah. <laughs> and of course, it serves some people's purposes to promote that PR. So the thing was, when seamounts were first, if you like, looked at biologically, they just happened to look at some pretty interesting seamounts. And they happened to be ones which supported some product, you know, quite a lot of productivity and lots of fish and all the rest of it. And so people were like, well, whoa, these these are amazing and they're, they're super important. And oh, and then we found some corals on the top of them. And this must be the, the case for all seamounts for some reason. Yeah. So people started to extrapolate what they found from a few very interesting 
seamounts to all seamounts. And unfortunately, that's not the case, right? There's lots of, yeah. as you like, boring seamounts. There's lots of seamounts which aren't as significant as others. And it, strangely, it wasn't the starting point that people began with in seamount ecology. They they just began with this paradigm that all seamounts would be interesting and highly productive. And it took a bit of time for that to be everyone to be disabused of that opinion. As more and more seamounts were were studied and looked at and all the rest of it, then we found, of course, not all seamounts or alike at all and there's a great deal of variability because this comes back to this whole idea that to be a seamount you have to be let's say greater than a thousand meters mm. but let's say you've got two seamounts of exactly the same size and volume but if one of them punctuates up into highly productive waters you're going to have one of those good pr seamounts right because of where the summit is yeah but then some of these deeper ones they might be a thousand meters high but if they're going from six thousand to five thousand meters the chances are there's not that much going on so it's it's more to do with where this seamount is formed vertically in the water column rather than how far it is off the seafloor. That's right. And that's why that definition that came out in 2007 around what was a seamount from a biological point of view, it was trying to make the point it's not about the, the height of the seamount at all. And you can find you know, significant topographic features anywhere from about 100 metres high. As a scientific discipline, what's the next step in seamounts? Because obviously when you've got numbers estimated up to 25 million, how do you even go about doing that? Do you just keep doing the same thing or is there a jump like from DNA sequences to eDNA or trawling to eDNA or something? Is it the next big thing in seamounts or is it just a big, long, laborious hundred years ahead of us? I suspect it's the latter, really. I think that, as you say, there's so many of them. I think we need to, you know, have a much more targeted program. And you can one can classify seamounts, broadly speaking, and you can use what data is available already. And so, you know, you can come up with some group, different sorts of groups of seamounts that you might expect might differ from ocean basin to ocean basin. And so you, you really need a much more sort of targeted... Yeah, almost subsampling an area. Yeah, whereas before we were much more hit and miss and we just go out to somewhere that looked interesting. I guess the other thing is that people will, just like our original research that we did in New Zealand, in the motivation there was to look at how bottom trawling has impacted some seamounts yeah. and to understand what that impact is and also to think about how one can manage that impact or mitigate for that impact. To do that, one has to think about how do seamounts differ from one another? How can we choose representative seamounts if we want to include them in a sort of spatial management plan or something like that? I was going to mention that because one of the big seamount stories is the Orange Ruffy story, right? That's mm. quite a big famous one. And that's all completely underpinned by the presence of seamounts, right? Well, not not entirely. So Orange Ruffy do occur over seamounts, but they also occur over flat areas as well. Right. And also the, originally people thought maybe they were occurring over seamounts because the seamounts or those seamounts could have been productive or it could be that they had particular habitat like corals that were useful in some ways for the Orange Ruffy, provided food or through being a refuge for other organisms, etc. But there doesn't seem to be any direct correlation between the presence of orange ruffy and seamounts per se. So oh. that's a little bit of a conundrum. Well, there you go. I stand corrected. Yeah. But they are found on some seamounts, but they're also found on the flat. Because well, I thought the whole point of like bottom trawling on seamounts was that everything was congregated towards the top. Therefore, it made an yeah. easy target for that's correct. catch yeah. per effort. Yeah, and that's true. So it does concentrate them, but they also occur elsewhere. I think, you know, there's still quite a lot of work, not that I'm a fish biologist, but to understand their movements and also, you know, how the populations are separate or not, how that might change their vulnerability at different times in their life cycles. But definitely trying to understand why it is 
that they occur on seamounts is still somewhat open in that regard, or at least if people still want to hypothesize that it is in some way related to the structure of the seamount or the occurrence of things on seamounts, you just make that association is still difficult. Yeah, it might it might not be so sort of directly biological. It might just be we need a landmark where we all yeah. get together. Uh, and it isn't actually providing anything. That's right. No, it's a street corner. Yeah, it does seem to have a like, there is something going on with, with the deep sea fish because Astrid had that lovely paper with record number of eels seen on top of a seamount. Mm. And then we had those observations as well, Alan, with loads and loads of juvenile cuskills, loads yeah. and loads of juvenile spectrunculus. So especially for the deep sea fish that start off as larvae in shallower waters, I think maybe they, they become a bit of a stepping stone as you metamorphose on your way down right. to becoming a deep sea fish. Maybe it's less competitive than the slope mm. where you're just like, oh, I'm a deep sea fish. My metabolism isn't very good at this. I can't really compete because I'm just on my way down. <laughs> yeah. So whether, you know, whether they become a a spot where sort of juvenile deep sea fish sort of work up yeah, to going deeper. That's right, some sort of refuge. And and there are other observations of not only of eels, but sharks, you know, and shark egg cases and such like. And yeah. again, that, that could be just because, you know, it's a very can be very heterogeneous substrates, right? Lots of nooks and crannies, you know, that you can deposit a um, shark egg case in etc. And then they start to be picked up. We start to see them on the photographs taken by toad cameras, but they, you know, they haven't been caught by, you know, trawling gear because the trawling gear can't get into those little nooks and crevices. So mm-hmm. yeah, we still got a lot to learn, I think, about how it is that seamounts are being used as habitats through different life stages of fish, certainly, but also other organisms as well. So the jury is really still out on how mm-hmm. how it is and why it is that some seamounts are more important than other seamounts. That's interesting because I always thought that seamounts, if you could call it seamount science, is was mm. always further ahead than trench science, for example. But actually, the more the more we talk to people, the more it, it's all just kind of stuff. There's a lot of things up in the air. There is, yeah. And I think that that's because it's just so much variability. Yeah. It's just that there's, you know, if there's millions of things, you know, there's not millions of trenches. If there's millions of seamounts, then there's so much variability in those millions. Mm then we're really a long way off really understanding them as, a, yeah. if you like, considering them as a single habitat. And there's different connectivity as well. There's some like way out there and they're just on their own and there's some like whole chains where yeah. animals can hop along them and connect to other places. That's right. And so again, going back to when, you know, seamounts were first looked at, ecologists then thought, oh, the, the ones they looked at were chain ones, right? And so they went, oh, right. So they're, they're a series of chains. That means they're, you know, they're stepping stones. And, and so they asked all those stepping stone questions, but then the number of the stepping stone type seamounts are not the most abundant. Yeah. And so there they were posing a question and people got involved in that question, but was just for a really a relatively small subset of seamount. Yeah, so the Orange Ruffy story, and if you like any resource association with a seamount, be it fish or potentially valuable minerals like cobalt, for instance, is in the crust which you find on some particular seamounts. Yep. They're going to be motivations for people to um, study them into the future. And presumably exploit them as well. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. particularly for fish, that's already happening and potentially that will continue, but certainly for, for their mi- potential mineral resource people will want to understand well geologists want to understand what that distribution of that mineral resource is and biologists want to understand how that mineral resource is associated with communities of seafloor organisms and again whether or not you can find those same organisms elsewhere on non-mineralized or so heavily mineralized seamounts that you could potentially include those seamounts and those organisms in a, a spatial protection scheme Thanks, Ash. That's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. Cheers. Good night.
Hello again. This is oceanographer and explorer Don Walsh. And for today's program, I'd like to talk about the ceremony that's observed primarily by naval and merchant marine sailors when they cross the equator for the first time. These first-timers are called polywalks, and the sailors who have crossed before are called shellbacks. So when the crossing is made, an initiation ceremony, a rite of passage, if you will, where the polywogs become shellbacks. In the British Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy, as well as the Coast Guard, the crossing the line ceremony goes back almost uh, two centuries. The event itself can be very elaborate or very simple. It really depends on the size of your ship. On the big ships, it can be uh, up to a day and a half of program activities. However, on the smaller ships, it's likely to be something in the order of hours. But in all cases, it is not simple and for the polywogs, not very pleasant. Simply put, it is not an all-hands ship's party. Rather, it's an initiation into a fraternity who have crossed the equator on board ships. Well, what are some of the general characteristics of the initiation ceremonies? First of all, King Neptune's court is convened, made up of shellbacks from the ship's crew. The polywogs are summoned to appear before the court, and of course, all of them are condemned to uh, punishment. And then is when the fun begins, or if you're a polywog, when the unpleasantness begins. In general, the polywogs get messed up. You have grease and paint rubbed in your hair or all over your body, and then you're made to crawl through a uh, ship's garbage, and you have to also kiss the stomach of the royal baby, a shellback who is blessed with the largest stomach on board. And finally, there's usually the gauntlet where the polywogs are required to slide along a well-greased, probably uh, lubricated by garbage, canvas track of, say, up to 20, 30 feet long. My first time was in 1953 on board the heavy cruiser USS Albany. I was a midshipman uh, at the time, and that status puts you somewhere between being an officer and enlisted rating. The ceremony took place out on deck. We're subjected to all kinds of unpleasant activities that I've already mentioned. But of course, we were not alone. We were also joined by polywogs from the ship's company. After cleaning ourselves up, we were treated to a special meal, and we former polywogs received our treasured shellback cards. Over the years since then, I've participated in many equatorial crossings, but I always had that card in my pocket, so I wouldn't have to repeat that initiation again. And in submarines, we do some special crossings, such as doing it submerged, going forward, and sometimes submerged, backing through it. But the real prize was to do all of this at the international dateline, uh, if you're in the Pacific, or on the prime meridian, the Greenwich meridian, uh, when you're in the Atlantic Ocean. And we call this the golden shellback if you're in the Pacific, and the emerald shellback if you're in the Atlantic. These are very rare because it's not really worthwhile to divert a ship off its track just to get there. But if you're in the neighborhood, it's a pretty special event. Finally, while shellback may be the best known of these rites of passage at sea, there are at least 24 other line crossings 
that uh, have special status. For example, there is the uh, blue nose for when your ship crosses the Arctic Circle and the red nose when you cross the Antarctic Circle, the golden dragon when you cross the international dateline in the Pacific, and there's also the mossback for those who have sailed a ship around Cape Horn. Perhaps my most unusual line crossing was the blue nose I got when I was going up to the North Pole on board a Russian nuclear icebreaker. And as we approached the Arctic Circle line, we got out on deck and had a, a buffet supper and an open bar and dancing on deck and the suitable ceremony with King Neptune and his court. We didn't have any of the rigorous hazing that I'd endured before getting my shellback qualification, but uh, just being outside and on the ice in the Arctic was very special. But after a few drams of uh, vodka, it didn't seem so cold outside. The food tasted better, and my dancing technique was immeasurably improved. Well, that's all for now, and thank you for listening. And that concludes this pressurized version of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to go into some more detail, you can find the full episode in the feed. Just match the episode numbers. We'll deep see you next time, and I abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Martus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone.